Welcome to The Foundry, where leaders are forged daily. Each week, we investigate themes of leadership, entrepreneurship, and mindset with some of the greatest minds in real estate. And now, the data scientist of real estate, George Roberts. Welcome back, investors. Today, we're joined by Shannon Robnett, a developer with over 25 years of experience. Shannon has been involved in construction projects ranging from multifamily office buildings and municipal buildings to schools, industrial projects, and mini storage. He is also host of Robnet's Real Estate Rundown Show and founder of Shannon Robnet Industries. Welcome to the show, Shannon. Thank you, George. Appreciate you having me on. Well, you have diverse interests, and, and we're definitely going to get to aviation, which I see is there behind you if you're watching the episode on YouTube. But first of all, I would like to just ask you, how is the construction industry these days, and what are some of the pitfalls you're seeing people get into? Well, you know, I think that, you know, like a lot of things, everybody takes a short-term approach to what should be longer window. You know, we've seen the construction costs have softened. We've seen as multifamily, you know, when we're doing, we currently have two projects under construction right now in multifamily, and those are 24 to 36 month projects. And so we're seeing some of our pricing soften. We're seeing more availability with subcontractors because a lot of the single family product has been paused. But, you know, when we look at development from the lens that I look at it, it's always a three to five year window that we view that in. So we haven't really made any changes based on what we've seen in the market, other than any new deals that we're underwriting. Obviously, we're underwriting with maybe a little bit higher interest, but I think we underwrote both of the projects we're currently working on at five and a half, even though rates were lower than that. Yeah, excellent. Well, it's a great business to be in and a difficult business as well. So you're one of the builders that was able to make it through the global financial crisis that wiped out a lot of other builders. So maybe you could experience or talk about your experiences there. Well, I mean, we had to go like everybody else and go where the work was, pivot and do all kinds of stuff. But, you know, the reality was at the end of the day, if you were in a position to, you know, weather the storms because you had diverse clientele, you had diverse assets that you were working on, you know, we did a lot in the development space prior to 2008, where we were just developing lots. And because of what happened in 2008, we don't do that anymore. So a lot of lessons learned and a lot of things that we do differently now that were product of that, that make sure that we hopefully learn from every thing that we've been through. You know, a lot of people, I mean, I think the school system has taught us that a wrong answer or a mistake is a bad thing. But, you know, in the real world, it's just a learning experience. And it's what you take away from that, where you grow from that, that really shows you where you're going to be able to take your business in the future. And if you stop growing, then that's really where your company stops. Wow. Well, you know, as you well know, we're in the midst of a housing crisis. I know that you do build multifamily, among other things. What's your take on the housing crisis and what is it going to take to get us out of this? What is it going to take to get us enough units that people just don't have to pay an arm and a leg for rent? You know, I got to tell you, one of the things that I see is that government has been involved in the problem. And from my point of view, you know, as a developer, we always see the municipalities get involved. 
I have a particular project we're working on right now. It's 190 units, but I met the code at 270 units, right? Everything that I was doing was legal and I met all the parameters, but the city kept taking this and they kept wanting that. And the next thing you know, I'm, I'm down almost a hundred units to what I could put on the property. And it's those kinds of things that are going to exacerbate the problem. The reality, and I say this tongue in cheek, but not really, if people want to see the housing crisis go away, cities need to let greedy developers do what greedy developers do, and that will be overbuilt. And then at some point, the crashing price will bring about the cheap houses that everybody's looking for. But until we meet the demand, basic supply and demand is going to continue to keep prices high. And so until we can get in front of that curve, we're not going to fix it. And right now, with what's going on with interest rates going up, the, the, the economy, they're, they're trying to stall the economy, but they can't because jobs are strong. We're seeing the economy is, is not reacting the way they're supposed to, but we're still five to six million housing units short in America. So as long as we're short, you're still going to see the demand is there. As long as the demand is there, you're still going to see the jobs are going to be created to satisfy that demand. And there's still going to be people working. You know, even in the global financial crisis, we only saw, what, 9.5% unemployment at the worst. So we still had 91% of the nation working, right? So if 91% of the nation's working, they can afford to buy housing. Whether or not they choose to is one thing, but we're trying to artificially have government override the natural demand that's in the marketplace. Everybody wants their own home. Yeah, well, I'm glad you said it. You said it first, greedy developers. But I mean, isn't isn't that the impression? I mean, isn't that the general impression? That, that's uh, what you need to have happen. That's how supply and demand gets in balance, right? right. I mean, look, if you look at what's happened with the acceleration of housing in 2015, the, the numbers were lower. Uh, than they were in 2016. But every year they kept going up, kept going up, kept going up until we had COVID and then everybody panicked and they pulled back, but then they surged forward and people were putting on massive amounts of product until interest rates started to go up that cooled the market. And so while I say that, I'm 100% emphatic that we will continue to build as much product as gets absorbed when you start raising and lowering interest rates as your barometer for how the economy feels, you start messing with what would really be normal supply and demand. And we've seen the government do that time and time again, that has adverse effects on housing supplies. Right. Well, I know speaking to a developer, we could talk all day long about how long it takes to get approved, NIMBY, all these issues and and like you mentioned, I think you said you started with 270 units, potentially right. approvable. And got paired back to to 180. But again, you said it the best. If people look at this like this is just greedy developers trying to make the most they can out of a project and not realizing, hey, we're another 90 or we lost another 90 units from this. Where are those units going to come from? I think ordinary people don't realize that. Everything from the delays to, I mean, a lot of places they've had to actually get a lot looser with some of the code and and have accessory dwelling units and things like that. So I see some good things on the horizon, but again, it doesn't seem like any of these issues are really going to, to solve the real problem at hand, which is that we're millions of units behind. And that's, and that's true, George. And, and, you know, this is like throwing a, a bucket of water on a forest fire. You know, we're millions of units behind and in our best year, we didn't build a million. 
right? I mean, well, we built we built about a million and a half. I'm sorry. But yeah. what we have to do in order to get six million units ahead is we've right. got to build a million and a half, and then we got to build another million. And we mm -hmm. don't have the capacity as a nation to build two and a half million houses. There's just right. you cannot do that. And so we have a problem that will be a decade to solve. And yet we see more and more and more government regulation every time we turn around. I'm watching stuff get approved last year that they had done nothing to change that had been denied two and a half years prior. And finally, the city realized that we're not getting anybody else come in because we keep shooting down these projects. So they went to the developers and the developers brought them back to the table, resubmitted them as is and got them approved finally, because the city realized we're losing if we're not getting these projects across the finish line. Yeah, and I want to say, at least as far back as statistics have ever gone, I want to say it was maybe uh, in the 70s, mid-70s, early 70s, got to maybe 2.3 million housing units completed. And then, yeah, again, at the global financial crisis, maybe 2.25, just under. So yeah, couldn't agree with you more. It's it's going to be a long haul. And I, I guess I'll just share with you one greedy developer story. My first council meeting, a lady looked at me right in the eye and said, oh, you know, you, you probably live in a mansion, right? Didn't like the yeah. sort of houses we were going to build, say they were too big, uh, too close together, whatever. But, you know, I like, wow, that was supposed to be a put down, I guess. Yeah. I, I don't even know what it was supposed to mean. Well, and, you know, my last city council meeting, I, my closing argument was I, I addressed the mayor and I said, I'd like everybody that just got up here and testified that's lived in Idaho for longer than five years to raise their hand. And nobody could. Right. All these people had moved here from somewhere else, but they wanted the door closed right behind them. Right. Mm -hmm. So the reality is you need good regulations. Right. You need good comp plans. You need all of these things. But then you really need to look at the tax benefits when you're talking about, you know, we're doing an eighty five million dollar multifamily project that is bringing in. I don't know, like two hundred and sixty thousand dollars a year in taxes. Right. And the whole neighborhood next door doesn't bring in a quarter of that. And yet you have you have school, the schools that need the money. You have roads that need to be built. We build all those us greedy developers do. We fund all those us greedy developers do. You know, this particular project we keep talking about, I paid almost two point two million dollars in permit fees. Right. That's just out of pure greed that I paid that just for the record. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. A hundred percent. And uh, gosh, I, I guess I got to just match you with one more great, great story about how you spoke to the mayor and the council and the people who got up to speak. And it's never anybody who appreciates what the developer is doing that comes to these meetings, it seems. Right. But I, I've heard another one where the question was, hey, you know, are any of you, have you been tenants in the past? Maybe somebody, you know, maybe brother, sister, cousin, nephew, niece is a tenant. Th these aren't bad people, are you? Are they? No, 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 no. These, these are my family members. These are my friends. Well, yeah. well, these are the sort of people we're trying to build for, right? This might be an apartment. It may be for rent, but, but these people are tenants just like you yeah. were. And just like some of your family still is, you know, these are real people. Yeah. And, you know, I think the, the, the general public, uh, they definitely, you know, I believe that they need to be heard. You know, mm -hmm. I'm not trying to take away their voice, but at the same time, when you have, you know, when a city does a comp plan, they spend 
thousands of dollars hiring professionals that look at how cities grow and what kind of goods and services go next to these kinds of goods and services and what kind of tax base do you want and how do you support schools and infrastructure and all those things. And you pay these professionals and then you let lady next door who worked at the (laughs) post office or or the gentleman that works in an office building 35 (laughs) miles away dictate what happens after you paid all this money, you know? That's like getting on a 747 with American Airlines and asking the guy in the front cockpit to get out while you fly. You know, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And I think the, the I think the results are going to be pretty tragic. Right. Yes. And of course, yeah, the behind the scenes, of course, the city always wants a broader tax base and generally encourages the development. But but when the people show up, it's, oh, Mr. or Mrs. Homeowner, we're so sorry that this bad person is inconveniencing you. And speak about the government. I mean, where were they in 2008? All those greedy developers that got soaked and could never build again. I, I mean, I didn't see the government offering to go bail them out. So it's the, the profits have to be there because nobody is going to take these sorts of risks. But anyway, hats off to you. You're helping to solve a real problem. And uh, we need some real solutions to this real problem. But I can see, even if I didn't see Boise, Idaho in your nameplate there, I was going to ask you, what is your take on Idaho in general and particularly the Boise market? You know, we've seen, I mean, this is the funny thing that I hear. I hear everybody talking about, you know, oh man, Boise's really getting clobbered right now. And I just, I ask people this because in the last five years, we've seen almost 100% appreciation in pricing, right? Right now, we've come down about 8%. And I asked people this, I said, would you even hear if the Tesla stock that you own for the last five years had gone down 8%? No. The Tesla stock you've owned for the last five years has gone down 78%. And yet that's not news, but the fact that Boise has come down about 8%, it's now the fastest declining market in the nation. But wouldn't you expect that of the fastest appreciating market in the nation three years in a row, right? And so I look at it and I go, man, I'm so grateful for the correction because we did see the peak about a year ago that was about 8% higher than where things are trading right now. What I love about that is that that means that there's a stable level about where we're at. Because when we see that you know interest rates have gone up 4%, the cost of that house has gone up almost double for monthly payment. And yet we've only seen a retrace in pricing of 8%. Yeah. To me, that speaks to the strength of the demand And in that, we've never gotten over a two and a half month supply of product on the market, right? So we're not getting to this four and five and six months, which should be our normal. We're not getting supplies up that high. We're watching national builders pull out of the market because they don't like it because it's too tumultuous. People are trying to still get in. Building is still going on. We're still seeing all these things happen at this level. And so I feel very good because if if all you see is just straight hockey stick, there comes a point when you go, this is going to fall back to earth. And when it comes back down and you're only seeing it go 8% before volume picks up again, I think that says a lot about a base that's built in there and the strength that's there because we're still quite a bit cheaper than any part of California. Yeah, wise perspective, especially when prices went on a major run starting in 2020, the fact that we kept most of that increase, again, does speak to that demand. So you have mentioned some macroeconomic factors. Maybe we'll just open it up a little, if you don't mind. 
a lot of crazy things going on right now. I mean, foreclosures are up, but they're way below historical norms. Rates are up, but they're also way below historical norms. Of course, they've retraced a little bit. Now we're recording this in the middle of February, and we've seen rates uh, well below the, the mid sixes for quite a while now. And we have all these indicators. People say, oh yeah, housing supply is up. Yes, but that's also way below historical norms. We are still very much in a seller's market. And, and you have all these fear headlines. I've also been watching many things, not just the interest rates, but Case Schiller. And take a look. I mean, we've we've almost leveled off. We're still declining each month, but it's by less than the month before each time. So what's your take on the market? Where are we headed? And uh, is there a crash coming in general? Or is this all just overblown? Well, you know, I tend to think that, you know, we have seen some major appreciation in the market. I think that, you know, the the market had been artificially stimulated with, you know, 2% interest rates, right? That brought in a level of affordability that probably should not have been there, right? Right. I mean, there was no need for somebody to be able to afford a $500,000 house on two minimum wage jobs, right? But that became a something you could do which that's great. That's the market. Hopefully you jumped in on that because that's not going to come back around in our lifetime, I don't think. But when you look at 6% interest rates, those are normal healthy rates, right? When I look at my career, 6% has been something we've wanted more than we've seen it, right? So I look at the combination. We're now at $400,000 on houses that were $200,000 six years ago, and we have 6% interest rate. That's going to be hard to assimilate. But where I look at the the cycle of things go, I mean, you start out, you've got the appreciation of the house because interest rates are low. Then you've got the interest rates that come up to start to cool the market. The last part of this is that we're seeing we're seeing wages go up. You know, even though we're seeing layoffs, we're still seeing wage increases, which is the last part of that because now you've got the four hundred thousand dollar house that now costs that's now taken a six percent mortgage to fund, and the employees are now coming into my office going. Boss, I love you, but I got to have enough to own a home. So I need to get another thousand bucks a month in my check. I need a a 10% raise to keep up with inflation because this is my life goal. I'm going to work for you, but I'm going to get certain things for it. And we're starting to see that. And while we continue to see ultimately a devaluation of the dollar, which is all that is, is because your house is still three bedroom, two bath, even though it costs more, it just means your dollar's worth less. At the end of the day, when you're trading that back and forth, I think we're coming to the bottom side of that cycle where you're starting to see that demand is still staying there. It's still not going away. And at the end of the day, people will, they've got to have a place to live. They've got to have a place to rent. Whether they're coming to me, whether they're going to a single family home, it really doesn't matter because I'm looking at the cost to build. I've got to have the ability to fund that with some sort of a mortgage. I've got to have the ability to make a profit on it. The other builder is going to be building the house. They're going to sell the single family. So I think we're kind of coming to a bottom. And everybody that I'm talking to does not think that we're going to get annihilated like we did in 08. There's way more. We were at such a different place as far as product availability in 08 versus product availability now uh, that it really kind of is one of those things that if the single family homeowner is not going to buy the product, the investor is going to buy the product and lease it to the single family 
person. We're going to have the ability to continue to build apartments, to lease those apartments out at where interest rates are at, where costs are at. So you're going to see that continued growth because we do need the housing and we're not seeing things get any cheaper and we're not oversupplied. Yeah, and that's exactly how it works. When are we ever going to see a two-handle on interest rates again? That was pretty amazing. Yeah. Well, from here, I think that I'd like to ask you about industrial because as you and I both know, uh, multifamily is getting more and more crowded. Certainly, we still have a need to build more housing units, but I've been actively seeking other opportunities in commercial real estate because, again, it's it's a more crowded field and you have other things like, say, industrial that I would say are a lot harder to get in. That's not your entry-level commercial real estate transaction. Well, you know, I and I would say that I would agree with you two years ago. But right now, as pencil-whipped as multifamily is with everybody trying to get in and everybody trying to buy it, it seems like the guy that makes the most mistakes in their underwriting is who winds up with it, not the guy that does the best deal. Because you're not, there's not, a lot of value left because there are so many people competing for multifamily, whereas industrial, it does not react like multifamily does. It does not appreciate as quickly. You're not able to force rents because you've got multi-year leases. You're not able to see things change rapidly because you don't have the pressure, even though we've seen that in four or five markets that we're, that we do industrial in, we've seen where you know, 15,000 square foot spaces and smaller have less than 1% vacancy, right? So we're seeing this. We, we watched Houston absorb 20 million square feet of new industrial last year. That is a ferocious pace to have absorbed that. They're bringing on another 27 million. So are we going to wind up with a glut or are we going to continue to see reshoring of, of businesses? We're going to continue to see pressure on this kinds of things. But the reality is when you're looking at an industrial deal, we're still doing industrial deals at a six and a half, seven cap. At the, the tightest the market ever got, we were seeing industrial trade at a five and a half cap, right? When you saw that same thing happen with multifamily at a three, right? Now, let's think about this for just a minute, George. You've got Bob and Sue who have their three little angels, right? They like to color on the walls and leave their bikes in the parking lot, wanting to rent from you. They've moved six times in the last four years but they're going to be your tenant, or you're going to have Sam who runs a fire sprinkler company that has been in the same location for 10 years, that has credit, that runs a business, that understands how things work, and he's going to be your tenant, right? Mm -hmm. So when you look at the difference of what the credit profile looks like, wouldn't you much rather have the credit tenant, the business owner that understands that location is how they make money, that they need these things to be able to procure, to be able to run their businesses versus... Sam or, you know, the other group, they'll move for 50 bucks. You know, they don't have credit or they would have already bought a home. I mean, all of those kinds of things, when you look at your tenant profile, it's such a drastic difference, right? So while it may not be your starter, I would argue that it's definitely something that everybody needs to have in their portfolio because of the stability. Right. I mean, you've got solid credit. You've got a step up in rent, most likely every year, multi-year leases. 
there are a lot of things to to recommend this and then it's probably a triple net property too so then you you basically you know that your top line and your bottom line you know where that's going to shake out because you don't really have much to do in terms of building maintenance. Uh, obviously, the downside, since you mentioned only the upside, <laughs> is that uh, when Bob moves his sprinkler company out of there, it may be really hard to find another tenant. You might be vacant for a while. But again, if it's as long as it's not your only property, if you have a portfolio, I would right. say definitely that would be the next thing I'd be trying to add.